Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered at Liquid by Pastor Tim Lucas. Liquidchurch.com, living water for a thirsty generation. Now, we're live on the web. in the greatest hits of all time. We've gone Rolling Stones, we've gone R.E.M., we've gone U2, and tonight, the Beatles. And uh, it's a neat thing as we rewind the clock a bit and go back to 1965. And my guess is that there are only a handful of you here tonight old enough to remember Beatlemania firsthand. Are there a few people who actually might have been there? Maybe there are like two people in the whole crowd. Jim, thank you. <laughs> Jim was like, I was there, yay! Screaming, I see in the crowd, right? Um, yeah, that, that was an infection, kind of swept the U.S. Uh, after the Fab Four from Liverpool, uh, performed live on the Ed Sullivan Show in 1964. And Help, I Need Somebody was a title track of their wildly popular album, the same name, Help, which you see pictured actually on the screen up there. That's a U.S. album cover. But to be perfectly honest, I know this is going to raise some hackles from, you know, longtime Beatle diehards here, uh, but I don't particularly like this song. Now, don't get me wrong. These guys did an amazing job. We thank these guys. I'm not nothing or nothing against you guys. did a phenomenal job. But, but it's got an incredibly catchy hook, and the vocals and melody are instantly memorable. But it's the words, it's the message, the lyrics that bother me, especially as a man. Help, I need somebody. You know, now, you're, you're talking to a guy who doesn't particularly like to ask for help under any circumstances. My wife jokes I have a 45-mile radius of stubborn. Uh, that is that I'm, pre- I'm perfectly willing to drive up to 45 miles, you know, in the wrong direction before I even acknowledge that, you know, I may be prudent to stop and ask for help. Uh, and even then, I won't, like, quite acknowledge it. We were going to Baltimore the other week, and, like, you know, Colleen was like, I think we're kind of going in circles here, a little lost. And I'm like, no, 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 I think we need some gas, though. And, you know, while you go, <laughs> they're kind of pumping fuel, and, you know, I'm mouthing to the guy across the way. I'm like, Baltimore, this way, that, which way, you know. Help. It's a four-letter word uh, nowadays for many of us. I mean, who wants to admit that they need help? Worse yet, I need somebody. Who wants to admit they need another person? That admission can be seen as a sign of weakness, you know, if you've bought into the values of our fiercely individualistic Western culture. I mean, most folks, especially adults, want to be seen as independent, not needy, not in need of anybody's help. And yet, when Paul McCartney and John Lennon penned the lyrics to this song, it seemed to hint that they shifted perspective as they grew older and presumably wiser. When I was younger, so much younger than today, I never needed anybody's help in any way. But now those days are gone, and I'm not so self-assured. Now I find I've changed my mind and opened up the doors. It's funny, as I was thinking about it this week, I'll concede that I've seen a little bit of that shift in perspective as I've matured. There's no doubt when I was younger, in my 20s, being like on my own, it was like a badge of honor. But now that I'm in my 30s, I realize, yeah, I get by with a little help from my friends. Uh, That truth was actually vividly illustrated to me yesterday as I was doing some work in our backyard. You know, it was a beautiful day, Saturday. 
We've got this huge trumpet vine growing in our backyard. You ever see a trumpet vine? It's not like a small vine. It's like a thick cable. It's about this big. And this thing has grown to about 12 feet, okay, in length. It overgoes over our garage. And it's beautiful. In the spring, it shoots these beautiful orange buds that like, they look like trumpets, hence the name trumpet vine. Uh, anyway, this thing grew so large and so overgrown this year that actually ripped off the hook on the garage and went to the, down to the yard. And now it's like all over our yard, creeping all over. It's like ruining the grass. Colleen's been on my butt to kind of like get it, you know, reattach this thing to the garage, whatever. So yesterday I was like, this is the day. Uh, Colleen's reading a book on the porch. The kids are like playing in a sandbox. And I'm like, this is it. I will reattach the vine, you know. So I go into the garage. I go into our garage and I get some rope and I get a bungee cord. And, um, and uh, I, I grab a ladder, a step ladder. I get this ladder, set this thing up kind of myself, get there. And I start climbing on this thing. Now the thing is... Right around the garage, a lot of rocks and stuff, little rock garden. So I put one, you know, leg on the grass, one on, like, you know, a rock just like that. So it's a little bit like, oh, it's going to be like this. All right, whatever. Get this bungee cord in my mouth and start climbing up this thing with the vine around my shoulder and neck because it loops like this. So I'm climbing up this thing, you know, and as I'm getting up there, you know, it's teetering just a little bit, whatever. And then I, all of a sudden I just hear, hon, hon. I'm like, what? What's up? And, she's, and I hear her say, she says, do you, do you, do you need any help, hon? And I totally took offense. I mean, because I am like, are you kidding me? Me, Tim. Me take care of Vine myself. You know, and I start going up this ladder, up the stairs, just kind of increasingly shaking. And as I get to the top, the ladder just kind of starts actually to tip a little bit. So I, I, I'm tipping, and I grab onto the, the edge of the roof of the garage. So catch this. I have one hand on the roof, one hand clutching the ladder, a bungee cord in my mouth, and a Vine around my neck. <laughs> Okay, it literally, I have one leg is of the ladder is there, and I hear a voice from the sandbox. Are you okay, Daddy? <laughs> Our kids have stopped playing. They're now watching, and I'm like, <laughs> I'm fine, I'm fine. And in a burst of, like, you know, Herculean strength, I twist my body, regain my balance, and I inch over, get the hook up there and everything, and I attach one end of the bungee, put it around the vine and everything, get it in place, and now I'm stable. And I go to attach the other half of the bungee, and literally as I get it in there, you just hear, snap! And the vine where I had twisted it breaks. Now, again, this is a cable, so it's like vine like this. So it's had a lot of tension and everything. And as that happens, literally, I go sideways. The whole step ladder. Whoa! One leg on it, one hand on the roof, one hand on the hook, vine around the neck, bungee cord in my mouth with tension. And as I'm laying there, uh, not laying there, I'm hanging there, kind of like Tarzan on crack, Colleen comes running. She grabs the ladder. She gets, you know, she, oh, get here, and gets her feet back on it, and she looks up at me, and I know she savored this moment. <laughs> She's like, are you sure you don't need any help? No. And I'm like, yes, I can use your help. And then from the sandbox comes this voice. Mommy, he didn't say please. <laughs> We're working on manners. Uh, point, most of us are not naturally predisposed to ask for help. Or to admit our need for someone else in life's most basic tasks. I mean, we prefer self-reliance, competence, and independence. And yet, when times of crisis hit, we echo the Beatles' desire for outside help from those who love us. Right? Help me if you can. I'm feeling down. And I do appreciate you being around. Help me get my feet back on the ground. Won't you please, please help me? Yesterday, though I don't like to admit this, I did appreciate my wife being around. I was like, first I was like, thank you, sweet. I do appreciate that. I thank you for putting my feet on the ground in a very literal sense. <laughs> and it's, but it's amazing to me how hard it was for me to ask my wife, of all people, for help. I mean, this is the woman I live with, sleep with, who bore my children. And yet, I don't like to admit my need that, yes, please, I need your help. 
as I said, I think my reticence comes because it sounds needy, kind of weak, especially as a man, you know, all your delusions of Tarzan-like resilience kind of, you know, swinging from the vines and your own strength kind of snapped yesterday when I came to the realization that independence is actually overrated. <laughs> Life alone, without the love and support of people who care about you, is not as easy or heroic as it seems. So practical experience actually begs us to reevaluate the Beatles' title to their 65 classic, Help, I Need Somebody. Is that, a statement, is that statement an admission of weakness, or actually, is it a confession of wisdom? What would you say? As I said, Paul McCartney and John Lennon, who wrote the song, seemed to indicate a shift in perspective as they matured and recognized the benefits of opening up one's life to the help and encouragement of others. When I was younger, I never needed anybody's help. But now those days are gone, and I find I've changed my mind and opened up the doors. Weakness or wisdom? Well, if the author of the Bible is to be believed, recognizing one's need to open up the doors of our heart to others, to community, is one of the wisest decisions we can make in our entire lives. I want to invite you, actually, to turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. And there are pew Bibles there, blue Bibles, if you'd pass them down so everybody has a text It's on page 1072, and you'll be familiar with Ecclesiastes because we actually parked out here when we began our series with the Rolling Stones' satisfaction. Maybe you'll remember what kind of of book Ecclesiastes is. It's a portion, a genre of wisdom literature. And I want to see who was here four weeks ago when we did the Rolling Stones. Who was the author of Ecclesiastes? Solomon. Excellent. A few of you are here. The wisest man in all of ancient history. God granted Solomon, actually, the desires of his heart. And the amazing thing is that Solomon asked for one thing, not power, not riches, but for wisdom. If you remember in 1 Kings 4, a little bit of review here, it tells us that Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the men of the East and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. Men of all nations came to listen to Solomon's wisdom sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. So during his reign, Solomon wrote over a thousand proverbs and wise sayings. That's why you get proverbs and Ecclesiastes as wisdom literature in the Old Testament. And if you recall, now this is extra points here. If you recall, extra credit, the main theme of Ecclesiastes can be summed up in a single phrase. Everything is meaningless. meaningless. I gave you a Hebrew word for it. Anyone want to give it a shot? <laughs> oh, my, the advanced placement class is here. You guys should just, we just pray and send you home. Chabel, <laughs> little spit there, yeah, meaningless, vapor, a breath, a breeze, fleeting, <laughs> life is chabel, meaningless, and it's an amazing commission because this whole book written by the wisest man in all of ancient history is about trying to find where meaning and purpose in life resides, and as we learned, Solomon looked many places, riches, I mean, talk about incredible wealth, not affluence, like make your own money wealth. Power, he presided over Israel at the height of economic prosperity and military might. Women, thousands of concubines and harems, undertook enormous uh, building projects, just unprecedented. And yet Solomon, in the end, considered it all chabel, meaningless, a chasing after the wind. If the Bible is God's songbook, in many ways Ecclesiastes are the blues. But if you listen to the blues, you know there's wisdom in the blues. And in chapter 4, verses 7 through 12, Solomon gives us this incredible tidbit kind of an insight into life and what it has to do with what happens when we take the risk of allowing our lives to be intertwined with others. Let's read this together, okay? Verse 7 of Ecclesiastes 4. Again, I saw something, chabel, meaningless, under the sun. There was a man all alone. 
He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked. And why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is chebel, meaningless, a miserable business. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Verse 12, though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. And we'll stop right there. Came across a fascinating newspaper article this past summer. I was reading on the beach. AP headline kind of jumped out at me. It said, study. Our circle of friends getting smaller and smaller. Dateline, June 24th, 2006, Washington. Americans who shocked pollsters in 1985 when they said that they had only three close friends today say they have just two. And the number who say they have no one to discuss important matters with has doubled to one in four, according to a nationwide survey to be released today. Now, these are the findings that were actually reported in the June issue of the American Sociological Review. And the study found that actually men and women across the board, every race, age, education level, reported fewer intimate friends than that same survey almost over 20 years ago. In other words, there's been a massive decline of intimacy, even within families, and weakening bonds of friendship just nationwide, according to this study, which went on to detail the far-reaching effects of involved in isolated living. And they were like, among them, fewer people turned to help, for, to, 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 help to for in crises, like this Hurricane Katrina. There's actually been a, a marked rise in neighborhood crime nationwide. Fewer visitors for hospital patients, fewer participants in, in service and volunteer groups. And it says this market decline is now adding tremendous pressure on spouses, families, and counselors. That was like the good news. They were like, if you want a growth area, counseling. <laughs> Most Americans have but one, two close, trusted friends in whom they can confide in. Does that, does that fact surprise you? You can blame all sorts of things for that, for our overscheduled calendars, you know, compulsive 80-hour work weeks. But the fact remains, as we climb the ladder of material success and become more and more affluent, there is a parallel decline in the quality of our relationships. A point was made in the article that we are becoming a nation that is materially rich, but relationally poor. And this is a little bit of what Solomon is getting at in Ecclesiastes 4. He says in verses 7 through 8, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had no son or brother, and there was no end to his toil. The guy worked his butt off, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked. And why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This, too, is meaningless. A miserable business. Why meaningless? Because life without sons or brothers, without sisters, and intimate connections with others is ultimately chabel, hollow, empty. Meaningless. That's what Solomon, the wisest man in all of ancient history, says. If there's a disease of the 21st century, it really is loneliness. <laughs> and many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. The gift of having a circle of trusted confidants. I mean, a, a friend or brothers or sisters in whom you can confide and actually care for one another in moments of crisis is one of the things that actually charges life with meaning and purpose. And many of you know people who seemingly have everything, right? A successful career, crazy wealth. They appear to be making it, but they're relationally bankrupt. And the result, Solomon says, is this suffocating sense of futility. For, for whom am I toiling? Point. 
you and I were made for connection. From the very beginning, you and I were built for community. Let me show you what I mean. Turn back for a moment to the very beginning, the very, very beginning, the first book, the book of Genesis chapter 1. This is one time I am not putting the page numbers on the screen. All right, Genesis chapter 1, take a look at what I'm talking about. This is the earliest basis you find in Scripture for the centrality of small group community in Scripture. Andy Stanley wrote a great book. It's called Creating Community. And uh, just keep your finger in Genesis 1 and 2. I'm not going to read actually through it. You can kind of surf with your eyes as I talk about it. But in Genesis 1 and 2, we read this creation account, right? Where, where God, how God planned for us to do life. And with little effort and like amazing creativity in Genesis 1, God creates the heavens, he creates the earth, he creates everything in it. I mean, the breadth and depth of what God was able to get done in six days is very challenging for even the most results-oriented type A personality. I mean, talk about cranking it out. Six days. But look through Genesis 1 and you go down and you'll notice that six times after God creates something, light, sky, land, birds, fish, cattle, the text says, and God saw that it was good. Okay, so from light to livestock, he assesses his efforts and says, this is good. He is pleased. Things are as he intended them to be. Then on the sixth day, humankind, you and I come onto the scene. This is the culmination of God's creativity. It's arrived. And God is so pleased by his latest creation that as he assesses his efforts over the previous six days, he actually changes his appraisal. Look at this. This is amazing. With his latest addition, this is in verse 31, the thing he's created are no longer just good. He looks at you and I and he says, they are very good. In other words, God's prized creation, we have tipped the scales. With the addition of humankind, God is like, this gets my five-star rating. Not good, very good. And then in chapter 2, the unexpected happens. After explaining in more detail his design and intentions for man, God actually says, wait a minute, whoa, 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 whoa. It actually is not all good. Up to this point, everything was as it it was intended. I mean, imagine this. Take this all the way back to the inception of creation. But in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, God says something is not right. He says "It it is not good for man to be alone. For years, many of us have heard that passage quoted in the context of marriage, and rightly so. But the implications go far beyond an affirmation of the marriage relationship. Because at its core, this is a statement by God about the importance of our connecting well and intertwining our lives with others in intimate relationship. The marriage relationship is just the most profound illustration of that reality. Some of you know I've quoted from uh, John Ortberg before. He wrote a great book called Everybody's Normal Till You Get to Know Them. And he made a helpful observation on this passage. And I want you to just think about this. Keep, just look at this. Look at your Bible. Here's the rest of God's story. And we're only on the second page. Capture this. At this moment, the fall has not yet occurred. There is no sin. There is no disobedience. There's nothing to, that's marred our relationship between God and man. And the human being is in a state of perf- perfect intimacy with God. Imagine this. Each, each word he and God speak with each other is filled with closeness and joy. You're told he walks with God in the garden in the cool of the day. We are known and loved to the core of our being by an omniscient, love-filled creator. And yet, the word God uses to describe him is alone. And God says this aloneness, yeah, not good. Sometimes in church circles, when people feel uh, lonely, we will tell them not to expect too much from human relationships. This is what Ortberg writes. He says that there is inside every human being a God-shaped void that no other person can fill. And that is true. But apparently, according to the writer of Genesis, 
God creates inside this man a kind of human-shaped void that God himself will not fill. No substitute will fill this need in you for human relationships. Not money, not achievement, not busyness, not books, not even God himself. Even though this man was in a state of sinless perfection, he was alone, and it was not good. Some of you are likely living in the land right now of not goodness, because I see you nodding your head or getting kind of a faraway look. Cut off from God's design for spiritual health and growth in the context of community. You were created for intimate, one-to-one connection with other human beings. It is vital to your soul and has been hardwired by God into your spiritual DNA from the very inception of God's creations. That's one of the reasons we place such an emphasis on small groups at Liquid. These are groups of five to ten folks who meet regularly for fellowship, for sharing, for prayer, for Bible study, and the spiritual care of one another. Now, how many of you have heard of a small group before, or you've been in a small group before? Raise your hand. Okay, good. Well, well over 50% of you. That's great. But it's interesting because a lot of people think of church and they think, oh, the service, right? I mean, we're doing church right now. This is church. Yes, but it's half of church. Small groups are the environment that we've created in our church where we believe folks can actually open up their lives to one another, not in a big group like this. We're going to have a few acquaintances, but an intimate, vulnerable, trust-based community for the purposes of spiritual health and growth. Now, many of you already know, you know about small groups. Maybe you were at our small group connection in between services. A lot of our leaders are here. They kind of had a a training, a little presentation to folks at the uh, 5 o'clock service. But the idea is that outside of Sunday services, the most important thing that we do, when we're outside this one big family that worships God together, we learn about his plan for our lives on Sunday night, that's great. But you're created for more than that. You're created to connect on an intimate one-on-one level, the kind of connection that happens only in a garden or between a small group of people and their God. Unfortunately, in many people's lives and in most churches, community is the building material that I believe is like the most neglected one. Why? Well, many reasons. For one, our culture encourages us to be independent, right? Not dependent on others. We're taught to be isolationists. We're surrounded by, think about your day, tomorrow, Monday, all right? I don't want to ruin your night, but think about Monday, all right? 12 hours from now. Ah, don't do it to me. You're going to be surrounded at school or during your commute, you know, at work, emails, your Crackberry on the phone. At the end of the day, it's like, who wants to connect with more people? And so what do you do, right? We retreat to our apartment, our home, and we kind of, you know, veg out, isolate, maybe all alone in front of the TV, or you go, you know, crank it out the gym, treadmill. God says, not good. Seeing one another on Sunday in a large group gathering like this for corporate worship, good. Waiting another six days before you're in fellowship again with other brothers and sisters, not so good. We neglect small group community because it's costly and it's time-consuming. Yet on the other hand, consider the high cost of not being in community and trying to build your spiritual life all by yourself. Independence, isolated, disconnected, uncommitted, alone, not good. The Beatles seem to know this intuitively. It's like they put their finger on the not goodness of isolation in their song, Eleanor Rigby. Do you know that one? You know that song? It's, 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 a, it's a devastating portrait of loneliness in the lives of a woman named Eleanor and a priest named Father Mackenzie, right? Remember this. Eleanor Rigby picks up the rice in the church where a wedding has been, lives in a dream. All right, I'm not going to sing it. Jay's like, don't do it, Tim. No. <laughs> Waits at the window wearing the face that she keeps in a jar by the door. Who is it for? 
all the lonely people, where do they all come from? All the lonely people, where do they all belong? It's a, it's a simple melody. You've probably sung it, but my, my friend Ed Williams was telling me, he was listening to it the other day. He's like, and it just broke my heart. That picture of aloneness, of forgottenness that so many people live with day to day, the futility in the feeling that like nobody cares, and the suffocating heartbreak of that, not good, not what God intended And the truth is, simply joining a church, even working for church, doesn't magically magically remedy that, right? Because then they say, Father McKenzie, writing the words to a sermon that no one will hear, no one comes near. Look at him working, darning his socks in the night when nobody's there. What does he care? All the lonely people, where do they all come from? All the lonely people, where do they all belong? Each of us needs to belong. It's not enough to believe You were made and meant for a family to belong to a community bigger than just you that cares about you, that wants to invest in your life, to have your life intertwined with the lives of other brothers and sisters. And that's why we intentionally designed our church here, Liquid, to function like a home. When we were talking about metaphors for how can we conceive of a church, we chose a home. And we're like, because a home has three key environments, right? When you first walk into a home, you walk in someone's foyer. Then you proceed into the living room. You take off your coat. You cozy up by the fire. And then maybe if you're family, you make it to the kitchen. You know what I'm talking about. I'll tell you why. Italian people are like, uh-huh. A foyer setting at liquid. Think about this. That's actually where you are tonight in the liquid foyer. This is where the larger gathering of guests take place, like this worship service. You, you don't know everyone here. In fact, I've seen many new faces, you know, over the last few weeks for the first time. I want to welcome you to our home. It's like take off your coat, stay a while. Hope you meet a few people and find them friendly. But it's a larger gathering where there's not tremendous intimacy, but we hopefully learn about God's plan for our life. We worship him. We want to invite you to take the next step into the living room. And those are the mid-sized group in which you can actually get to connect and hopefully move from acquaintances to actually friends. It's how you get to know others on a more intimate level. And these actually are not huge, large groups, but they're medium-sized groups. We've got several small groups designed to foster these closer connections. We call them living room groups. Some meet bi-weekly for dinner. Some of them are just totally social, you know. Some actually go meet in New York City, actually. They're not even here in New Jersey. They meet in Manhattan for shows and stuff on Friday night. That's awesome. When you think about the living room in any home, right, what is it? It's the most casual, comfortable place. You sit down. You get to know one another. That's the idea. But the kitchen in a house, or at least in the house of God, is the ultimate destination where you want to be because it's the place where family gathers, where authentic life-on-life community takes place. And not surprisingly, it's the context we believe where the most radical life change actually has the best chance of happening. Where you, when, if you, when you want, really want to grow, you don't want to just hang out in the foyer on Sunday night. Though that's good. You come here, worship God. But you have to step inside the kitchen. Because it's around the kitchen table that people actually roll up their sleeves and actually be their true self. I mean, kitchen, think about kitchen table talk, right? Everyone's polite in the living room. Oh, hello, how are you? But dialogue around the kitchen table is the gritty stuff of life. You ever get that? Uh, Can I see you in the kitchen, please? You ever have that one? (laughs) It's where the conversation is heated between family members about money, singleness, marriage, God, jobs, girlfriends, boyfriends, children. It all takes place. It's where the family meets, or at least my family meets. My brother and sister-in-law are actually in for the week visiting from San Francisco, and we're all meeting tomorrow at my parents' house. And I expect that eventually, although my mom's going to make like these little, you know, she gets like the shrimp from Costco and this like little like kind of beater shop, right? Like little cocktail, like it's not alcoholic, but it's like a little fruit punch. And she'll put it all out in the living room thinking everyone will go out there. But you know where we're going to end up. We're going to end up in the kitchen. 
probably me, my brother, my dad. Because why? Because that's where you let your hair down. That's when real family gets together. You can have a large circle of guests in the living room sharing polite conversation, but in the kitchen, everyone talks about what's really going on in their lives. Tomorrow, my family will probably get personal in the kitchen. My dad will likely tell us about his most recent cancer scan. My brother, who's an entrepreneur, will tell us about the latest hedge fund and the successes and the struggles of that and what he's been pouring his life into. Colleen and I will probably share the, the tell him about the joys and the challenges of raising, you know, two pre-K kids. And we'll probably be like, could you just lay your hands in prayer on us, actually, please, and cast it out. Uh, the kitchen is the place where life on life transformation happens. The room where life is really lived. Where folks share their fears, their hopes, and their dreams with one another. And it's done in a smaller group with people who are more than just guests. Even more than just friends. We're friends but with people you consider family. And it's what you were made for and where you belong. So our goal for you at Liquid, if we had you for a year and said, what do you want to do with me for a year? It's like, we want you to come deeper and deeper into the home. To move from our foyer here, this large group gathering, actually take a step into the living room, make some connections, one-on-one friendships with others. So some people here actually, maybe five or six people actually know you. Not just know Jim's name, but know what makes Jim tick. And eventually move into the kitchen and actually wrestle through the issues of one-on-one's life. And the reason we place such an emphasis on small group community is because there are distinct practical benefits behind it. If you go back now to our main text in Ecclesiastes 4.7, you're going to see Solomon outline these benefits for us. Take a look back here. That was a little off-ramp, but now look back here. What's the wisdom behind admitting our need for, for the love of others and opening our hearts to others in small group community? Look at what Solomon says. He's like, there's a man all alone, all alone. He had nor, neither son nor brother. For whom am I toiling? This is meaningless and miserable business. Now look what Solomon says in verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Verse 10 was written by Mr. T. Pity man. Fall down. <laughs> Right off the bat, you see the obvious benefits of intertwining your life with others in a small group community. And the first is spiritual productivity. Some of us come week after week, and you feel like, I feel like I should be getting more out of church. Um, maybe it's Tim's messages, or I think the worship was flat, or there's a million things you can blame, and actually that's probably one of them. But spiritual productivity, if you're hitting a ceiling in your spiritual life, or you feel like you're kind of stalled out, take a look at what he says. Two are better than one. Because they have a good return for their work. In other words, if you really want to grow or get a good return on the effort you're putting into growing spiritually, there's only one way. You have to partner up with other people. And I know this cuts across many of our stereotypes of the spiritual life. You know, most people think, you know, well, those who are really serious about getting to know God, you know, those are like, like monks and nuns. You know, people who, like, squirrel themselves away from others, you know, lock themselves in a closet, read the Bible, meditate all alone, cut off from human contact. No, not good. (laughs) Yes, solitude and time alone for prayer with God are important spiritual disciplines. But the reality of it is that for most of us, we will undergo the greatest personal growth in the context of small group community. Because it's where life change has the best chance of happening. Why? Because it's where you actually get to put into practice the essential arts of actual Christian living. It's practical. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. In other words, at some point, we're all going to (laughs) stumble. 
or fall into a crisis or problem or, or trial or so, sometimes of our own making, sometimes from outside forces in the world around us. I want to think of all the ways that you can fall in this broken world. You can fall financially. Some of you know what that's like. Lose your job. Make a bad investment that ruins you or go, go through a, you know, a spell of bad business or unemployment. Who are you going to turn to in that time of trial? You could fall relationally. Maybe you go through a divorce or, or, a, or a breakup. Where are you going to heal? Here? All alone? So some people say, they say oh, I'm going through something terrible. I, gotta, I want to go into the woods and just kind of lick my wounds, leave me alone. That is a recipe for bitterness and resentment. It's in a time of grief or loss that you most need trusted friends and caring family who can console you, offer words of understanding or compassion, pray for you, and create the environment where God can actually begin his healing in you. Financially, relationally, how about falling spiritually? I mean, I know most of us are immune from, you know, the big sin, right? Right, that was kind of a joke. <laughs> the air goes out, it's like, the air goes out of the room. Who, who do you go to if you're feeling a million miles away from God? It, it's sad, I, just a little, little, it's sad. The majority of emails that I get from folks who are struggling with faith, faith, and I just get a lot of them, and they're typically not so much from this congregation. I'll get them from England and New Zealand for some reason. The people like listen to podcasts, I don't know why. But they'll come, and I'll be like, it's overwhelming to me because they are single-spaced emails, no punctuation, three pages long. It'll be someone who's been listening over the internet, and they're vibing and connecting with something deeply. I'm talking about, you know, porn addiction or a relationship or whatever it is, and they will pour out their life story to a person they've never met. And I read every word of it. I read every one. But sometimes I just respond. I say, thank you for sharing your story. And can, can I ask, have you told anyone else about this who lives near you in Queensland? <laughs> and they'll say, oh, no, I, 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 don't, I don't go to church. You're my church. Oh, do you have any friends, like maybe a couple other Christians that you hang out with? No, I'm, I'm the only one at the pub where I work. And I often, I, and to people, honestly, who write from church, I say, do you have anyone else you can share this with? Are you in a small group? And more often than not, the answer, no. Why? All the lonely people, where do they all belong? Where do they come from? Cut off from God, cut off from community. If one falls down, his friend can help him up, but pity the man who, who falls and has no one to help him up. Some of us will fall health-wise. You could lose your health. You may have suffered the loss of a loved one or the loss of a dream, whatever it is. And when it happens, one of God's prescriptives for survival and recovery is small group community. He has ordained that you have brothers and sisters to care for you, to visit you in the hospital. He actually says... Ding, 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 this is a magic one. You visit the sick in the hospital, it's like you're visiting me. You have others to care for you, to pray for you, to wrestle through the doubts and raw emotions that come when you lose a precious part of your life. Solomon says, basically, help in a time of crisis is one of the biggest benefits of intertwining your lives with others. And it's not just, you know, in case something happens to you, because the majority of us actually get to be givers, not just receivers, I mean, on Sunday nights, we learn what God wants from us. And it's pretty simple. We narrowed it down to two things. You remember this whole thing? To love God and what? Love others. Spend yourself serving one another. But that gets worked out and your faith practiced in the context of life-on-life community. 
It's where you actually get to practice giving mercy to those who need encouragement. Or maybe generosity to a brother in need. It was interesting. I heard actually about, and I won't name names, but I heard about uh, uh, one of the, our small groups where one of the guys lost his job. And the other men actually rallied around him to provide his rent for three months. Because he had so many debts out there. And when he still didn't have a job after three months, they helped him move. Which to me is an even bigger sacrifice. You know what they say. You can tell your friends are when it's time to move. (laughs) But small group is where you live out your faith and your love for one another. And you, where you actually learn to actually give forgiveness to someone who's hurt you. To experience the joy when God actually answers your prayers together and brings blessing into your life. Small group life is also a primary source of intimacy and companionship. If you look at Solomon, he says in verse 11. Oh, also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. It's how you combat loneliness, the disease of the 21st century. How can one keep warm alone? It's very difficult to keep your heart full of all those fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, tenderness, when you live the solitary life. You know people who live the solitary life and the bitterness and kind of sharp edges that often accompany that. It's a fact that disconnected people tend to be more selfish. A narrowing occurs when we're out of community. This happens to me on Fridays when I'm alone working on the message and stuff. It's like I'm alone for five hours and like I'm a nice guy when I go in there. And when I come out, Nikki knows. I'm like, what do you want? You know, like you tend to get focused exclusively on your own schedule, your agenda, your priorities and desires. And when that happens in the life of a Christ follower, it's tragic. Because you were saved for a purpose. And it wasn't just to get your butt into heaven. But to actually spend yourself in serving others in the way Jesus Christ served you. Loving and serving others as Christ loved and served you. Where are you going to do that? The Bible tells us it starts in the family of God. And that as we love each other, that love is supposed to actually then overflow to the world around us. Now, human propensity is to drift. You know that, to kind of just drop out and forget God or isolate or estrange oneself from others. And the Bible is anything, but it's just practical because it actually recognizes this and instructs us to intentionally meet regularly for mutual encouragement and accountability. You flip over to Hebrews. I'll throw up on the screen here for you. Look at this, Hebrews uh, chapter 10, verse 25. A writer exhorts believers. He says, let us consider how we may spur one another. And that's a great verb. Think spurs. Kick each other in the gut. On towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up, surrender, meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. Apparently, some of the earliest Christians decided they actually didn't need regular community. They were actually prepared to just go solo. And so God actually commands community in the New Testament, regular fellowship so that we won't drop out of the race, but instead grow in our capacity to love God and others well. That's what the early church did. It says they met in the temple courts for the apostles' teaching, and then what did they do? They broke bread in their homes, small groups. Now, to give you a real-life example of this, because I know this is all just kind of like, you know, ethereal and out there, I'm going to invite Brennan Coughlin. Brennan's over there. Would you wave to everyone, Brennan? Come on up. Give Brennan a hand. I'm going to give the mic to Mr. Brennan. Brennan is one of our small group leaders and, in fact, is a leader of a couple groups. But, Brennan, last year you actually, last semester, I should say, you led a small group for just men. Can you tell us what that was about? Um, I led a small group uh, for Wild at Heart. It was for guys in their 20s, and it was basically a book uh, challenging men to become the kind of men that God wants us to be. We basically were just navigating through that book together. It was uh, six of us. It was an awesome experience. Now, why is that necessary? I mean, men in their 20s, don't they have a clear path towards masculinity? 
This is like a softball question to you. <laughs> Uh, when we all got together, we definitely um, found out that we were going through a lot of the same issues and struggles yeah. about whether it's career or um, where we could go to challenge ourselves just yeah. to become men of God. And we definitely made a lot of connections there, and the book was definitely helpful. Yeah. Were there one or two things that you even think back over the you know, course of the past year that made an impact in your life or the life of some of the guys in your group? Yeah. I mean, I know personally, and a lot of the other guys shared this too, um, just being in spiritual community together definitely a big deal. I know I kind of had a tendency to be a Lone Ranger Christian a little bit. When you okay. preached on that, it's yeah. kind of like sinking down the pews a little bit. <laughs> um, but just being part of a spiritual community together and kind of holding each other accountable and just getting together on a regular basis, laughing and going through some tough stuff um, was just awesome. That was really cool. I want to invite you, while Brennan's up here, thank you, Brennan, to hang out for one sec. In your bulletin, would you pull out a sheet that looks like this? Because I want to introduce you guys to the way that we do small groups here. And there are a few things that you really need to know about them. If you look at it, Brennan actually has been leading one of our closed kitchen groups. And what we mean by some groups are open and some groups are closed is that the closed ones have a set roster of people. Six to twelve people. And the idea is, is that when you contain it to just those people week after week you'll get to establish trust, bonds of trust and intimacy that you can't get anywhere else. So your group was actually closed, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. We were a closed group, and um, it was you know, just awesome because we all got to know each other, and there's yeah. definitely a sense of camaraderie and comfort. Con- confidence, kind of confidentiality, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. There are also, though, open groups that you'll notice. And these are, if you're, in, you know, if you're kind of wishy-washy, like, I don't know if I'm, I'm willing to risk this, but you'll notice here that open groups actually have roll, rolling um, roster. In other words, anyone can show up at any time. And the neat thing about that is that all of our groups are based around season of life. Now, Brennan led a group for young men in their 20s. That's great. Were any married men in that group? No. Okay. All single. Very single. <laughs> what is very single? What's that mean? <laughs> it tend to be a popular topic. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Awesome. That's, that's, that's it. That's what it's about. But if you look at this, they're based around season of life. So you'll see we actually have some engaged and married couples group. We've got one that says the newlywed game, actually. Some for single women. Others that are topical-based, based on, like, issues of sexual purity. We even have one that's opening up for midlife marrieds. Apparently, there are people over 40 at Liquid. And, uh, all right, Mary Jo. Okay. <laughs> um, not, not you're over 40. You're cheering for the people over 40. Right, okay. Um, but you can see some of them are actually topical. Some of them are like, for instance, a lot of our people are very practical. Are you in debt? Are you struggling with how? You're like an adult now. It's like, how in the world do I do this? Crown Financial. That's one Dave Brooks leaves, and it's an in-depth study of what Scripture teaches about managing your money and possessions, how you set a budget, how you actually, what are God's design for money and everything. Some of them are based on geographic region. Where do you live? They're actually all types. But what I wanted to keep Brennan up here for is that there are really two types of group. You lead a kitchen group, which is obviously about real spiritual growth, developing your own heart, your soul, relationships with one another. But it says here you're leading actually a living room group. Can you tell us what that is? Sure. Um, this group is uh, a running club that I'm co-leading with uh, Elizabeth Perrain, who's getting ready to dominate the New York City Marathon. <laughs> um, and basically it's just for anyone to come who wants to come to go for a run and... Uh, Hopefully, it'll be the kind of thing where people can invite non-believers, and it'll kind of be maybe like a segue into inviting them to go to church. So real laid back and not throwing the Bible. Perfect. Just an opportunity for people to come out and actually discover that there are some Christ followers who are not total wackos. That's a great thing. And if you're, if you're new to our church, 
and you want to make some friends, living room group is a perfect kind of thing to do that. We have a young couples group. We have a dinner and more. That gets 30 to 40 people a month, actually, who come out for one night just for dinner down in Princeton. So the idea is, is that you can take a step into building those friendships, but you can also take a great step into building those really close, intimate spiritual friendships and connections with God through both a kitchen or a living room. You could actually sign up for both of Brendan's groups. Is that true? Uh, no. <laughs> no. Only the, the running one. The other one is, is a closed group. So. Oh, I was testing you. True no, question. I forgot. Okay, thank you. Would you thank Brendan, actually, for coming on up? Great job, Brendan. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate it, man. You get the idea. Um, and here's what I need to just quickly mention. These groups are semester-based. One of the reasons I was always gun-shy about signing up for a small group is because I was like, if this thing sucks, I am in it for life. <laughs> I will never get out of it. That's why we base small groups on semesters. So the idea is we had our first small group connection sign-up actually tonight after the 5 o'clock services, in between services. Did anyone go to that actually? few people, great. We're having it again next week. So if you want to sign up for a small group, come early to the service next week. Come at 7 o'clock, and you'll be able to sign up downstairs. You can also sign up online, by the way. But it starts in October and will only go through the beginning of December. We base it around 8 to 12 weeks so that they're easy on and off ramps. You're not signing up for life. You're not going to be able to never get out of it, okay? So it starts for semesters and follows the school calendar. The next one will actually be in January, and that's the idea. So I want to strongly encourage you to sign up either tonight online, you could come to the connection next week, but to get involved because one of our core values here at Liquid is actually phrased this way. It says, growing larger and smaller at the same time. (laughs) That is, it's our belief that no matter how many people come on Sundays to our services, and you've likely known that has increased over the summer. We've been averaging about 600 people in August, and that means there's this new wave of faces that God has brought this summer, and that's awesome. We love growth like that. But as that happens, we're going to become more and more intentional about growing smaller and connecting people in small groups where you are truly known. If you come on Sunday night, quite honestly, when it's, you know, 300 people or whatever, and you don't come the next week, chances are someone may not notice that you're not here. And that hurts. Small groups is the place where you'll be truly missed if you don't show up. It's easy to get lost in a crowd on a big worship service in the foyer, and people might not notice if you don't attend, but small groups are supposed to be like cheers. The place where everybody knows your name. And they're always glad you came. All right? In verse 12, Solomon gives the final benefit of small group community. And that really is support when under attack. He writes this. He closes it out. He says, Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. You know, we often say that the spiritual life is best compared to being in a war zone. (laughs) Bible tells us that actually the enemy of our souls is committed to attacking us to keep us separated from God at arm's distance and suspicious of one another. And Jesus says, the thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy your life and do it in a million ways. You know it. From temptation to discouragement, we are all in danger of being taken out and rendered just useless to God. Just useless. But here's an interesting fact that came across in my study. You know, one of the the metaphors Jesus uses to refer to his church is as his flock of sheep, and that he is our what? Shepherd, his chief shepherd. Did you know, in real life, sheep are rarely attacked in herds. They're almost always attacked when they become isolated from the rest of the flock and just go around the fringes. And that's what Solomon is getting at. He's like, on your own, you're toast. Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. You need somebody who is praying for you, 
who is praying with you, who can be counted on to come through for you when a time of testing or crisis hits. And the coolest thing is, Solomon ends with this great image. He actually says, a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. It's a beautiful thing. Think of a cord and three, three braided cords. And it's a picture of true spiritual community. You often hear this at a wedding. You know, a husband and wife are braiding their lives together and God is running down through the middle. But the metaphor is not exclusive to marriage. That's God's design for all of us, whether you're single or married. That our lives are interwoven with the lives of other believers and that God himself supplies the thread that binds us all together into a community of love. Because that's what's at the heart of the universe. The fact that God, the God in whose image we are created himself, lives where? In community. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's one of the distinguishing characteristics of the Christian faith that we worship a triune God. Not one, but three persons who are so completely united and intertwined that they are one deity. Think about this. When you strip away everything else, before everything, before Genesis or Ecclesiastes were ever written, before the world, before you and I were ever formed, what was at the heart of the universe? A fellowship of hearts. A love relationship, a community of love between Father, Son, and the Spirit. And that's who God is. And his open-hearted and invitational nature is so life-giving that it begs to invite others into it. That's why he sent his son here. The first glimpse we actually get of the Trinity in Scripture is in the very beginning, in Genesis 1.26, right? Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Notice the plurality. The, ancient, the ancients had a word for this. It's an amazing word. Perichoresis. Peri, P-E-R-I. Think like perimeter, round like a circle. Choresis comes from Greek chorus. What's a chorus do? Sing, dance. They imagine God to be in a circle dance of love with one another. That each person of the Trinity, open-hearted, facing one another, feeding off one another, a circle dance of mutuality and love, the ultimate intermingling of lives. Parachoresis. Say this with me. Parachoresis, the circle dance of love. And Scripture shows that that's accurate. The submission of one another's lives to one another. Think about this. The father saying to Jesus, son, this is my son who I love. I love you. I am well pleased with you. And Jesus, the son, answering back, I I don't act on my own will, but I only do the will of him who sent me, my father. Everything is under, I obey him. And the Holy Spirit acts in submission to Jesus who sends him to indwell you and me and remind us of everything that Jesus taught. This is the God in whose image you and I were made. That's why we crave connection. That's why we are wired for intimate, caring relationships with a few others, like father, like son, like daughter. It isn't because you're needy. It isn't because you're weak. It's because you're made in the image of God who exists in perfect community himself. That desire in you, it's not a need. It's a desire. It's a divine desire. And it's placed in you by the God who lives to love others. And he's made you in his likeness. I love it. One of the early church fathers put it this way. He said, we were born out of the laughter of the Trinity. Isn't that great? I love that. I think it's it's amazing. This is more than just being in a group of church folks. This is about opening up your heart and your life to others and forging those deep, close bonds of fellowship and trust that provide you with the benefits of small group connection that Solomon highlights for us here in Ecclesiastes. Look them over. Spiritual productivity. It's the fall. Most people are going back to school. You want to be more fruitful. You want to get a good return for your work. 
Help in a time of crisis. If you fall down, your friend can help you up. Pity the man who doesn't have you in his life to help. Don't just think about what you get, what you could be giving to someone else. We get to experience the warmth of intimacy and companionship and support when under attack. The one can be overpowered, two can defend themselves. It's interesting, but when you think about it, you need look no further than Jesus' own life to understand the value of small group community. Guess who led the original Christian small group? I choose you, 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 you. Only 12 of you to intertwine my life with. And those guys ran together. They shared life. They walked down roads. They talked. They prayed together. They broke bread and did life together with God. And that's what it's about. So how about you? As we approach this fall season, it's a time of fresh starts, new growth. Are you in a state of goodness right now? Deeply connected to God, deeply connected and intertwined with others, or are you still in the land of not good? Kind of drifting, little isolated, maybe stalled spiritually. Are you willing to say, maybe for the first time, help? I do need somebody. That's not weakness, that's wisdom. And it's an invitation to. Tonight, you have the opportunity to take a step into community this fall by signing up for one of our small groups. I actually signed up myself in between services. We ask all our leaders to do that. Why? Because we want to grow and develop too. It's what keeps me honest, actually. And I just want to say, I'm going to admit to you right now, there are a lot of good reasons for you to be like, maybe, but I think I'll wait till January. I take a pass this time. And the most obvious reason is because you're like, I've been in a small group before. (laughs) And you know how hard it is. You're like, it's not just all best friends and easy commitment week in, week out. You have to get along and put up with folks. Yes. That's called refinement. (laughs) You have to open up your life to others. Yes, that's hard. It's called trust. You have to covenant to care and support for each other. And these are people outside your biological family. Like, I got enough stress at home, man. I got it. Yes, this is your spiritual family. And it's costly. Real growth and lasting friendships always have a price tag. You'll experience a range of emotions that accompany any relationships. You'll share friendships with some. You know what? Friction and conflict with others. But you'll also be growing in the fruits of patience, of grace, of forgiveness and restoration as well. This is an invitation to family, folks. It'll be the place where you're missed if you're not there and to be really truly known and to share life with your family. So tonight, an invitation to move from this foyer into the living room or the kitchen. I think you'll be glad you did. Groups actually start in, I think, three weeks, so you have a little bit of time. If you missed it tonight, you can sign up before service next week or go online. This is but a sample of what we have. You'll notice there are like 12 listed here. We have about 40 groups all together, and they are very, very diverse. There's everything from faith and film and seekers groups to serendipity. Some of these have amazing names, serendipity and radiant. What is that about? Equipping, encouraging women to radiate the essence of their faith from the inside out. Some of Brennan's group are like, I'll join that. (laughs) We've made it that easy to get involved. Let's stand together in prayer, okay? Lord, we thank you um, for your church. We thank you um, that you ordained community, Father, in your very nature, that we are built for relationship, we are built for you, and we are built to love one another. I pray, Lord, that you could even begin building this community, Father. We, we have a lofty goal. We want to see every man or woman, Lord, connected outside of Sunday night. Um, that's what it means to belong, Father. And I pray that tonight you would even stir in some of the hearts here 
who have been reluctant to take that step, Lord, would you give them the courage to take a risk and open up their lives to maybe someone you've ordained, Lord, to help them, to encourage them, to be a companion to them. I pray for the people who are hurting, Lord. I pray for the people who feel all alone. Would you please let them know that we are here for them, Father. You are there for them. You are already with them. Lord, create the um, appetite in us to want more. Want more of you and want more of your grace in our lives through our relationships with one another. We ask that in the name of Jesus. Amen.